0: Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, we are recording uh, this podcast this week kind of in chunks, which is to say we recorded some of it yesterday, but not all of it. And um, there are a few reasons for that, but one of it is that we knew that The president would visit the pope this morning and we wanted to be able to just see uh kind of what happened with that and something has happened with that um now podcasts are recorded at a particular moment in time um and so we're going to talk about this from this particular moment in time which is to say that we could record it edit the podcast publish the podcast and then there could be other developments so all we can do is sort of speak from this moment in time but we're 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 recording this at uh, about nine o'clock my time here in Colorado, about 11 o'clock, your time in in D.C., and, um, and the, uh, President Biden met with the Pope this morning, and there was a very sort of interesting development that is emerging uh, right now um, uh, in, as a follow-up to that visit. Uh, yeah, the according to the sort of traveling press
1: pack, President Biden said that they didn't talk about abortion during their... He and the,
0: he and the Pope didn't talk about abortion, which I, we sort of didn't know that they would talk about those kinds of things so okay
1: and um he said the pope just told him that he was very happy the president was such a good catholic and uh told him to keep receiving communion
0: allegedly and then apparently so so biden came out and he was talking to reporters and um he said that uh the the pope said that he was a a a good catholic and he should keep receiving communion and then um a reporter asked um, again to clarify: Did the Pope say that you should keep receiving communion? And Biden said yes. And this is um, this is kind of surprising because um, it comes amid all of this, uh, co- you know, all of the discussion that has been ha- being had here in the United States about this question of pro-abortion politicians and Holy Communion. And um, uh, by Biden's account, the Pope uh, effectively um, upended or shut down all of that new conversation.
1: Yeah. um, It also, I mean, it goes against not just what the Pope has said in recent weeks about abortion, but also what he said in a recent papal press conference about uh, Catholics who publicly support legalized abortion and what that does to their state in the church with regard to communion, small C with the church and communion, capital C in the sacraments. Um, It's a very unusual development. It is, I think, what the kids call big, if true. (laughs) Um, because I mean, no, look, I, I, I watch a fair number of press conferences and interviews that the president gives. And, um, well, I think it's fair to say that sometimes he interprets, uh, facts and events in a way that don't necessarily accord with, uh, things that can be empirically demonstrated that has happened before that he has come away from, uh, events with a very different interpretation. Than perhaps other people have, so I I don't know. I am. It is obviously a big deal that the president is saying this. It is going to be a big deal. Uh, on the other hand, we only have one side of this. I doubt very very much that we're going to hear anything out of the Vatican, uh, either confirming or denying Biden's version of things. Because, of course, one of the things that happened yesterday was that the the Vatican press office announced that there was going to be no reporters in the room, no live cameras, none of the usual sort of pool access for the chummy meet and greet uh, with Biden uh, that normally precedes the Pope meeting with leaders, uh, that it was going to be a completely closed shop and they were only going to have access to official Vatican media images uh, that would be circulated to the pool sort of after the fact. So it's pretty clear already that Rome doesn't want to get involved in the spinning of the president's visit. Um, but this is going to be a big deal.
0: Well, I think it is, especially in that it's going to become a big, this talking point is going to become a big sort of fulminating talking point over the next couple of weeks. I, um, you know, I think you're right at that. Okay. So the, the president met with the Pope, he came out, he said that this is what the Pope said. Um, I think it is unlikely that the, uh, Solestampa, the Vatican Press Office or any other um, organ of the Holy See will clarify this or confirm this. I mean, it's possible, and you know that they would confirm it, but I think it's it's highly unlikely that they would confirm it or offer an alternative version of events. So I think that this will sort of stand as what the president has um, said happened. Uh, One of the reasons why it surprises me um, that the Pope would say that is because, so last month, uh, in the month of September, the Pope was uh, on a plane coming back from Slovakia, and he made some comments about um, abortion and the way in which um, being a politician who supports abortion could impact reception of Holy Communion. And one of the things that the Pope really emphasized is that this is um, something which should be discussed and discerned effectively by a catholic's pastor or in with a catholic's pastor that it is fundamentally a decision at the level of the pastor which is reflected in many ways in in the church's code of canon law and so the notion of the the pope um effectively sort of upending what the a a pastor has said seems unlikely now is it possible that you know sort of saying like well whatever your pastor says you know this is what i'm saying now is it possible that biden sort of said my pastor has said that I should keep receiving communion, and the Pope um affirmed you ought listen to your pastor or seem to affirm you ought listen to your pastor in part sort of not to exercise his full immediate um ordinary power like into into the middle of Biden's pastor relationship with his pastor. yeah, I think that's I, I think that is a one possible way in which this could have happened right that Biden says, here's what my pastor said, and the Pope says, well, you you know you need to listen to your pastor without sort of um getting into it. Now there are people who would say, well, that's a scandal and the Pope shouldn't have done that and et cetera, et cetera. Again, it would be speculating on a conversation that we don't know anything about, but I'm just trying to think, what is the way in which that could have happened? That seems to me, because the Pope has emphasized that this is something, you know, to be dealt with pastorally at the level of the pastor, that seems to me to be a way that this could have happened. It wouldn't surprise me
1: if um, Biden had said something to the effect of my local pastor, either at the parish he attends in Washington, D.C., or even his local pastor, meeting Cardinal yeah. Gregory. Um you know, if Biden said, well, my my bishop or my pastor, or maybe his bishop in Delaware, I don't know, um, have said I should keep receiving communion. Is that okay? And the Pope said, yeah, do whatever your pastor says. Yes, totally buy that. But here's the thing that I think doesn't add up, um, is Biden said that abortion didn't come up at all. So right. if abortion didn't come up, in what context were they discussing whether or not Biden should be receiving communion? Yeah, that's a good... That it doesn't a... make any sense to me that you would raise one issue and arrive at... Um, you know, a discussion where presumably there was at least some reference to people saying Biden shouldn't take communion and some confirmation from the Pope that he should. And yet they didn't discuss abortion at all. That doesn't that, that does, it yeah, just doesn't, it doesn't add quite. up. And this is what I mean about saying we've got a very, very weird um, yeah. version of events here that I don't think is in any way
0: representative of the full conversation because it just doesn't add up. Unless by abortion didn't come up, Biden means we didn't discuss my policies vis-a-vis abortion, but we did; it did come up that the U.S. bishops have been talking about all of this stuff. And, you know, in that context, I mean, I, I can see a way in which Biden could be making some distinctions and saying, "Well, we talked about how the bishops are, have been talking about Holy Communion, but we didn't talk about my policies on abortion or the immorality of abortion." And again, we, we're, we'd be speculating with half a half a side of a conversation about what had happened. I, I do think there is a way in which the Pope could have said, "Well, you, you have to listen to your pastor," and you know, you think about a bishop sort of in a. This is not a this is not a perfect analogy for a, a variety of reasons. But, you know, you think about sort of a bishop in a receiving line at the back of his cathedral after Mass on Sunday, and, you know, people are shaking his hands, and one person comes up and says, you know, now, bishop, my pastor said blah, 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 but this is how I think feel think about it. And the bishop sort of not being inclined to jump into it says, well, you know, you need to listen to what your pastor says. Um, I-, I suppose I could see that. It's a little bit different because they were sitting down for 90 minutes, uh, sup- supposedly, and 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 these kinds of things. But um, still i could see if you're talking with a bishop about something um he might say that people might say well you know the pope has a responsibility to um to address this this more robustly and those kinds of things but again not knowing the whole of what was said um we can't know and won't know i don't think whether the what the pope the whether the pope did say more than that did offer some kind of exhortation related to biden's support for legal protection for abortion or not because we're getting um a narrative of events that clearly doesn't reflect the whole of a conversation. I don't think it's the case that Biden sat down at the Pope's desk and the Pope said, hey, you're a good Catholic and you should keep receiving communion, right? There's there's more to it. So we're not getting the whole of the conversation and um, we're getting <laughs> through the lens of a par- an interested party, someone who has an interest in a particular outcome. And uh, and so all of those things, I think, have to lead us to say, we can see other ways in which this the conversation might have gotten there but we don't know enough about the rest of it to make any substantive judgment about it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, again, I just, I'm I'm very, very skeptical of, I mean, and maybe I shouldn't be, maybe I should be more inclined to take the president as word. But in general, I, when a politician starts throwing out casual yes or no answers about something that he knows no one else is going to be able to fact check,
0: I'm just a little, I'm a little skeptical. I am. Now, uh, Ed... Do you think that means that um, most people... Do you think most people between now and the U.S. Bishops' meeting next month, for example, will say, hey, we only have a snippet of a conversation? No. We should probably refrain from making too much judgment about all of this?
1: No. No, no, no. No. There will be wall to wall. The Pope has said Biden can and should receive communion and is a good Catholic, and that is now de fide doctrine.
0: One of the first things I wrote for The Pillar... Uh, was an analysis, but it was before Biden's inauguration. Actually, it was an analysis of the way in which um, Biden had during his campaign effectively triangulated his relationship between the Pope himself and the U.S. bishops to say, "Well, when the U.S. bishops are critical of me, I pivot to, towards the Pope and say that I have all the support from the Pope and those kinds of things." And that analysis was criticized by people who say, "No, you know, Biden is not doing that." Well, here's a case where um, what is known is that there have been has been discussion and criticism of Biden's policy positions and questions about Biden's eligibility for reception of Holy Communion among the U.S. bishops, and then Biden sort of coming out with this statement that comes from, it you know, that does not come from a full, you know, account of a conversation in which he said, well, here's what the Pope told me. Um, I I guess um, you could call that a kind of triangulation. Again, I want to presume good faith on the part of everyone, but you could certainly call that a kind of triangulation, and it will certainly... Um, be used that way, I think. In the next few weeks, any bishop who says, I think, any bishop who says we need to take seriously, you know, um, the church's canons on worthiness to reception of holy communion with regard to pro-abortion politicians, will hear in response, "Well, the pope told Biden he could receive communion." Period.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's that's exactly what will happen. Um, and the again, the pope's surprisingly coherent uh, and very thorough explanation of uh, his views on communion small c and communion capital c and abortion which he gave on that press conference coming home from slovakia notwithstanding this is going to be this is going to be the final line as far as anyone is concerned that's that's what will play that's what will be said and anyone who suggests that there is any kind of application of the church's moral teaching or canon law to president biden or i think we can safely say now other pro-abortion Catholic politicians like Nancy Pelosi us will just say, well, the Pope has said, you know, that's that's going to be what it is. And, uh, you know, I I do not imagine the Vatican will be best pleased with this. I think that if they've taken, as they did, extraordinary steps to limit uh, even the sort of most friendly, basic press access to the meeting between the Pope and the president, presumably out of awareness of the sensitivity of all of this. Um, this is exactly the sort of thing that they were going to be hoping to avoid. And here we are. Um, (laughs) good luck getting people to talk about anything else (laughs) because
0: this is, we're in this room now and we're going to be, I actually had some plans for the day. I have some, I have some like, kind of like what I would call deep work that I've been not just getting to like some stuff that I need to work on for the pillar that I that's just like, I need several, you know, focused hours to do. You know some stuff and uh and and my plan as you know was to effectively record this with you and then do it but i have a feeling actually that i'm going to be thinking you know doing some sort of coverage about this this uh communion issue because this is the thing which has come up today yeah it has yes. well how are you ed
1: uh i'm all right i don't know if you can hear the baby crying through the
0: microphone but uh, i could she... a little bit but I, I i i could just a little bit for a moment is she uh um is she having a little squall a little bit um
1: which is fine i mean we're we're finding a rhythm Uh, and by finding a rhythm i mean i'm surrendering in spirit uh to whatever the child wants to do i no longer fear the nights i just accept that i'm not going to sleep and (laughs) it's going to be what it is um and that's that's fine uh i have well, I, I I was supposed to be I'm supposed to have a dentist appointment this afternoon I don't know if I'm gonna to need to cancel that now because as you said the, there oh, has I been, don't know we'll see we'll see but there have been some developments in the world of news that will require our attention um, but you know I I was kind of looking forward to an hour or so in the dentist chair just for a bit of peace and quiet
0: but Indeed. <laughs> you know um, that's what how are you doing how are you doing I... JD we never talk about you let's talk about you. <laughs> I am, uh, now I'm thinking about that, uh, you know, that country song, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about one but one on my mind, what I think, what I mean, Uh, you know that song? No. I like talking about you, 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 Jubilee, but occasionally I want to talk about me. You don't know that song? Nope. Well, it's a country song from probably 20 years ago that I think of as a contemporary country song. Anyhow, um, I am actually, uh, I guess I do want to talk about me, um, because I am well and, um... And to talk about why I'm well, I want to. I guess um, I want to. I want to tell a story, I suppose. Um, if that's all right with you, Ed. You're you're a storyteller. You're a natural raconteur. Wow, that's a great compliment. I don't think it's true, but I really appreciate it. No, you Back you are. in 2000, 2018, the year of um, McCarrick and the Pennsylvania grand jury report and all the things that came after it, was a was a year of um, considerable transformation for me. Um, you know, as you know, I, I started working in Catholic journalism in 2017. and yeah, in, in 2017, and I had been doing that for more than a year when McCarrick, um, when the McCarrick stuff started to happen. Um, and before that, I had spent most of my you know all, the entirety of my career working in diocesan administration and chanceries as a, you know, chancellors of a diocese and 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 um, canonical advisor to bishops and the, these kinds of things. And um, and and dealing with a fair amount of priest personnel um, stuff along along the way. But 2018 was a was a moment of kind of um, change for me in that um, I think when the McCarrick um, stuff happened and the Pennsylvania grand jury report came out and um, and then we started talking with people who had been victims of um, sexual abuse or coercion in the context of the church within the church um, I, I came to realize that the degree to which there there is a there is a way in which I at least and I can only speak for myself but I at least kind of in, Chancery practice and working in the administration of the church probably was, to some extent, kind of myopic about the way in which, um, the way in which the shortcomings of the church's ministers, the sins or, or or great failings of the church's ministers, can be profoundly impactful on the lives of faith of people who practice the faith. How much of a scandal it really can be when the church is mired in scandal, uh, of one kind or another. I, I think I saw sort of not being in the chancery in 2018, not like working within the diocese to think, okay, how are we going to respond to this, but rather just sort of watching how dioceses were responding and then how other Catholics were responding to that. Um, I I think I saw the way in which um, Catholics at that time, I think, were um, were looking for human responses that were both like pastoral and fatherly, but also that were... Uh, clear and unambiguous about the the, the their um, contempt for scandal, um, uh, the, the sin of sexual abuse or coercion within especially the clergy because of the way in which that profoundly impacts people's faith. I think I saw for the first time the way in which people were really, really looking to know that bishops were saying this is absolutely wrong, we have contempt for this, and we're going to be serious about how we respond. And then to be serious about how they respond um, I think, you know, we all just saw like, wow, the, this stuff really, really hurts the church and the body of Christ. And one of the things that I I think learned then in 2018 was the way in which um, a mechanism of public accountability in the life of the church is important for her holiness. That... Um, It's true for all of us that when no one is um, watching, when when no one is sort of attentive to the way in which we um, conduct ourselves, it can be easy to become tolerant of certain kinds of sin, or it can be easy to become complacent about certain kinds of sin, or to fail to appreciate the gravity or the impact of certain kinds of sin, that if we don't have sort of reflection back of what has happened or what is happening and and the significance of it, it can be easy, I think, to... um, to allow ourselves just to, to, to become complacent or to fail to see the significance of, of uh, even small sins, which can sort of snowball into big sins or can which become um, uh, uh, tolerant of or, or um, complacent about big sins. And so for me, like 2018 was a time when I began to realize a way that we can serve the church as Catholic journalists, um, an aspect of the prophetic vocation of our baptism um, is um, to reflect the way in which the church Um, needs to be um, serious about uh, addressing issues of, you know, sexual abuse and misconduct and other kinds of sort of things as well, like financial misconduct and those kinds of things, as a service to the church, not to sort of play gotcha or to make salacious headlines or to get a lot of clicks, but because um, providing a mirror um, into those kinds of things is the only way that um, they can be sufficiently seen and appreciated and uh, and rectified, right? That, that like tendencies and cultural problems that lead to these kinds of things can be seen and, and attended to and rectified. And so 2018 was a real sort of moment of, for me, seeing the importance of these kinds of things, which is what, as Catholic journalists, a lot of what you and I have been doing in various ways since then with regard to um, yeah, sins against the Sixth Commandment and sexual abuse and coercion, but also financial things and stuff like that. It's just become clear to me that that is a, an, an essential part of the, the, the identity of a Catholic journalist in service to and in love for the church yeah i I would agree with that i mean um
1: well you originally hired me in 2018 and um i think i've mentioned before that when i took that job uh my my hope my ambition my motivation was to get away from issues like uh the sexual abuse crisis and, and things like that because that had been the focus of my practice as a canon lawyer and i was a little bit burnt out and feeling a little bit jaded and uh, wanting a change of pace.
0: And in the end, you know, you you hired me the next week, the McCarrick scandal broke. Um, It's my conviction in short that God has called us to this and in in providence that God has called us to this. And that may very well be true. What what I was going to say is the way I I sort of experienced that
1: moment, that period Mm. after the breaking of the McCarrick scandal and everything was... um, I, I actually found a new enthusiasm for trying to help the church wrestle with these issues, having done it in one way as a lawyer, you know, with all of the things that come with that, whether it be, you know, having to work within the system, within the confines of a legal system, um, and, and sort of doing things in, 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 a, in a process which I think has, broadly speaking, been opaque. Um, you know, is not something that most people have a good grasp on, and is not something in—it's not a process into which there is much transparency, as we have discussed before. And I, um, when the the McCarrick thing happened, and there was all of this stuff going on, as you say, I I actually found it uh, reinvigorating to be, if you like, on suddenly on the outside looking in, and. I I do think, and I have seen, and I do appreciate that there is a necessity of the kind of um, exterior independent. I'm always slightly ticklish about the the phrase public accountability, especially around journalism, because I think um, there can be this sort of soft impression that talking about public accountability implies the, the subjection of the thing that's being held accountable to the ones who are holding it to account and that's obviously not a valid ecclesiology in this case yeah sure but nevertheless that you know there is a certain i mean the church is a society yeah um, and within the society there are different members there are institutional members there are other kinds of members um and you know the faithful do have rights and dignity as a member of that society and they have the right to make certain opinions and questions known to the institutional hierarchy and i think that the Um, The challenging in a a sort of in a loyal way of the way processes work, of the way institutions function is an essential part of keeping the whole body healthy, that a system and a process and a hierarchy which is only internally referential gives birth to a culture of what I think we have now broadly um, as Catholics accepted to call clericalism. Yeah, And, um, you know, making sure that that kind of culture doesn't take root or where it has taken root, it is excised, um, does to a large degree depend on a healthy external society around it, which gives it context.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And so that's what we have been doing. And I really I genuinely feel and I'm glad you do that. I, I genuinely I think I have discerned that that is really um, a, a, a call um, that is part of our baptismal identity, and I'm, I'm glad to be able to do it, and that's what we have been doing, and um, we were doing it in a different way, and then um, we decided to launch the pillar, and part of the reason we decided to launch the pillar is because we wanted to be able to do the, this kind of work. In fact, we felt called to be able to do this kind of work in a way that was um, as independent from any interest as um, as we could be, and we had the perception that if we were able to, um, to launch something that was... Uh, that was focused and um, that was born out of our love for the church, but that was um, you know, focused on a kind of journalism that aims to serve the church, first by you know, translating things that are, exist in ecclesiastical language and helping people to understand what's happening in the life of the church, but also to be able to really spend time on the areas of the church that are in need of reform, that the, that the church herself has said are in need of reform, with regard to good governance. I mean, I think that's a big part of it is that, I can't speak for you, but I believe in good governance, and so to be able to really spend um, time on the things that um, help to um, lead the church to good, better, just, holy governance, um, that that's a worthwhile endeavor. So that's why we launched this, and I am proud of the work that we have done here, and I think, you know, in the 10 months that we've been doing this, I, we can point to a lot of things that we have done that have been, um, I think, of service to the church and have been uh, helpful to allow the church to sort of better understand um the ways in which God is calling her to a deeper kind of conversion, a deeper kind of conversion towards justice and truth and 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 holiness. So awesome. Now, on a personal level from time to time that can become for me. This is where I was going with the story. On a personal level from time to time that can become for me. You know, um it's hard, right? I mean, it, you have to have sort of thick skin in this industry and I'm not sort of belly aching about it and those kinds of things, but you know, um there are a lot of people uh, who I Think well of in various ways. Um, there are a lot of people in the in sort of um, hierarchical constitution of the church who um, who think perhaps on you, you know, who think unfairly. I think, but who who think you know that Ed and J D are being menaces, or Ed and J D are um, you know just trying to make sensationalism, or Ed and J D are um, people you know have said to me are tr- trying to hurt the church. Why would you want to hurt the church by embarrassing the church? And uh, and that can be you know it can be hard because. Um, we don't want to hurt the church. We want to serve the church. All everything that we have done is born out of our love for the church. Um, we have often sort of been very, very intentional about discerning the kind of work that we do and the way that we do it to ensure that we're reflecting our love for the church and our belief in the integrity of her identity and the veracity of her doctrinal claims um and our commitment to being sons of the church. And so, you know, on a personal level, it can become, demoralizing when figures in the hierarchical constitution of the church think that we want to hurt the church. And, um, you know, I, I, for myself, I sometimes experience that even as spiritual attacks where it's like a great kind of self-doubt or, or those kinds of things. And so the other day I was, you know, feeling, uh, I, I think I was subject to one of those spiritual attacks and feeling a great deal of self-doubt about what, what we do and the mission of what we do. And this was the consolation. This is why I said that I am doing great. Um, I was talking with, um, with someone whose story that we're working on, a, a priest who has been discouraged um, in the life of the church because he's he, he's in a situation that does not seem just, and we have been kind of working to help him. And, uh, and, and, and he said to me, you know, like, thank you for being in solidarity um, with me because I really have not been sure where to turn in the church. And I, I thought about other people who have said to the pillar, thank you for being in solidarity with us, people who love the church, people who love Christ, people who want to pursue a life of holiness and feel that they have been hurt in the church and, or feel that they have perceived, received injustice in the church and feel that they have had nowhere to turn. And I thought about the way in which, I think this was a, a real spiritual consolation, the way in which people like that have in various ways said, thank you for being in solidarity with us. Thank you for hearing our story. Thank you for telling our story, helping us tell our story. And, um, it, it seems to me, Ed, that, um, if there are members of the hierarchical constitution of the church who object to what we do, and the reason for that is because we're trying to stand in solidarity with people who love Jesus Christ and his church and want to be a part of it and have been hurt or have suffered injustice because of it, if, if we have experienced sort of any kind of, um, you know, contempt, as it were, as a consequence of that, I'll, I'll be proud of that. I'll, I'm proud of that now, and I'll be proud of that at my um, at my judgment, too. You know, I'm proud of us if we're able to stand in solidarity um, in that way with people who who love christ in the church and want to be um, and want to experience freedom in the church and have experienced something other than that
1: yeah well and also i think there there is um, within an authentic ecclesiology and theology of the christian faith and the catholic church there is a prophetic witness to be made about things that aren't going well that mm-hmm. that happens it's in the scriptures it's in the history of the church um, and generally speaking, when there are people in the life of the church, in the society, the perfect, complete society of the Catholic Church, who are saying, this thing that we're doing over here and the way we're doing it, that's not right. That's not in accord with the church's own true identity as yeah. the bride of Christ. Um, the reaction doesn't tend to be universally positive. Uh, in fact, right. it tends to be overwhelmingly negative in the moment. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a saint. Uh, I doubt that very much. Um, I, 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 I would, would it confirm that. Yeah. Um, but the the experience of the hierarchical church or members of the hierarchical church taking a very strong and angry line against people who have a good intention for the, the life and reform of the church is not unknown um, amongst the saints. And while I may not be in the numbers of the saints, I'm confident that uh, our intentions are of a kind with some who have done similar things in the past in the life of the church. And I think it's part of the healthy life of the church that if there, if there isn't this um, outlet, if there isn't this sort of, I I don't know, I don't want to call it a charism because I think it's a very loaded term, but um, apostolic work. Yeah. I, I, I do think it's a service. I think if this service isn't being done, it's a sign of decay. It's a sign of ossification. In a society and an institution. So I'm happy that um, I'm happy in myself that what we're doing and the way we go about it is is a necessary function that someone's got to do it. And um, I think, you know, we've ended up doing it because we both came at it from just different career paths. But I, you know, I kind of feel like in many respects, well, of course, this is what we do. What you know, looking back at some of the choices I've made in my careers over the years that never, um, that never seemed to make much sense or have much coherence at the time. Now it's kind of like, well, yeah, of course, this is where I ended
0: up. What else would yeah. there be? Mm-hmm. And and I want to say, you know, it is not a, by any stretch of the imagination sort of all that we do to point to, um, you know, problems in the life of the church or all that I we want to do. And 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 I, I'm proud of the I'm, I'm proud of the the ways in which we have found. Um, found and reported on and covered grace in the life of the church and the life of grace manifesting in the lives of believers. I'm proud of um, the ways in which we have been able to, and I'm also proud of the way, and and I think I'm I'm grateful for this, the way in which um, we've been able to, I think, just help break down and make more understandable things in the life of the church that are often often not understandable if you don't kind of know the language and speak the language and speak the signs and speak the culture. And that is a core part of our mission too. And another core part of our mission where I really think is an area for us to grow is to continue to seek out the solutions. So to continue to say, and I think we do this and I, and I want to continue to do it. So with our data um with our data-driven demographic work we do a lot to say what is the state of affairs right um what is the state of affairs we look at we we have done a lot of reporting and we have more coming up about kind of like what are what let's take a hard look at the numbers to get a sense of the state of affairs of the church and the life in the united states how many people are really practicing the faith what can we expect about that going forward what can we you know what what can we learn from trends of the past and then i think our sort of reporting on issues that are need of reform are also what is the state of affairs this is what has happened right um but i think um I think a, a natural sort of growth from there, and, and we've done some of this, and I think we're honestly called to do more, is to say, and what are the solutions? Where are the places where people are trying um, either new and innovative things in the life of the church or even returning to um, old and proven, time-proven things in the life of the church um, as a mechanism of the church um, living the, the charism of holiness to which the Lord has called her? That seems to me to be a growth, um, uh, you know, a, a continued growth from us is to be able to look and to see— um, the the to see in in in, in what's happening around us, um, not just what is the state of affairs, but where are people? Where is the Lord moving in those state of affairs, and where do there seem to be real um, real solutions and and uh, and real approaches to this that are uh, of, of of value and from which the church can learn? Yeah, but I mean, this was
1: you know, this is one of the things that we talked about a lot when when we started this thing ten months ago or whatever was that. Um, doing that kind of data analytics, uh, doing that kind of big picture stuff needs a lot of elbow room, needs a lot of time, needs a lot mm-hmm. of um, investment of time and resources and daily working schedule and things like that. And you can't do that while you're while you're chasing the minute by minute tweets of what the White House press pool say the president has just said about his meeting with the Pope. Um, and that's the tension of all journalism is... How much do you stay in the moment how much do you step back into the bigger picture stuff that i think ultimately is is more important and more impactful um and i hope we skew more towards the latter because that's that's why we're here yeah um me but too. yeah
0: i know it, it it is important so one of the places where i want to grow is that that kind of solutions directional thing and then another area where where i it seems to me that the pillar is positioned to grow and where i i hope that in year two we'll be growing is um, that I think we have um, some expertise into kind of the hierarchical constitution of the church and diocesan and Rome, Vatican life. and so we have focused a lot on you know you you CC Maragna and the finance scandal and you know various things happening at the usccb and in diocesan life but um, but one of the places where I think that there's real room for growth, and that I I think that in many ways the Lord is calling us to grow, is to begin to cover other areas of Catholic life with the same degree of expertise and seriousness, to begin to cover you know, Catholic health care with the same degree of expertise and seriousness, and to find people who are able to to do that, to begin to cover um, Catholic education, higher education, and you know primary and secondary education, but what's really happening in Catholic education with the same degree of expertise and seriousness, and um, to broaden our coverage from um, coverage that is, um, for the most part, I think we have done some very good international stuff, but for the most part, a great deal of our coverage is about Rome in the United States, and to be able to broaden it and to begin to cover the life of the church in more uh, in more countries, so that, I, I think, so that we can learn from what's happening in, in other parts of the world, but also so that we can be of, of service to the church in, in those parts of the world um, as well. Those all seem to me to be natural areas of outgrowth. Um, in a practical way, I think those mean, you know, I I think there are some cool things that we're positioned to do that are that that we're close to being able to do. You and I've talked a lot about really wanting to launch a, um, a serialized storytelling podcast about the Vatican finance scandal. So you know, the Vatican finance scandal in 12 parts, which would be um, really, really hard to tell that story in a good way and to have the right kind of voices in in there. But a really cool project. Um, you say that? M- how could it possibly fail? I did.
1: I <laughs> I disagree. I think this <laughs> is this is the true crime podcast the cool kids have been waiting for. This is no. I'm sorry. You say oh, it'd be really hard and just tell it right in a way that
0: was engaging and accessible. This is the Godfather
1: 3 playing out in the of Yeah, but we got to get the people. I...
0: We got to get the people. Yeah, yeah. We got to get the people and we got to be able to tell it. You know, I mean, it can get really, really, really complicated and really complicated. Telling really complicated stories well means finding the clean lines in them and, and, and fleshing out those clean lines and that ain't easy, but it's worth doing and I'm excited about the possibility of it. Okay, so we have that. Uh, we have those things. And then I, I really think that um, in the big picture of Catholic media, so much of the conversation in Catholic media is these highly polarized highly um, contentious uh, um, voices that you know are are um, in, on all sides of Catholic media are are like aimed at um, doing sort of combat with those who they you know who are perceived to have a different vision of Catholicism than than they have and uh, and that expresses itself in various ways but I am allergic to um, a lot of the kind of, back-and-forth squabbles of the of the Catholic media commentariat. But I do think that in, in the big picture, to be able to um, help to uh, identify and elevate voices who are able to kind of cut through a lot of that and to speak into things that are happening um, in the world, beyond the life of the Church, but in the world from a Catholic perspective and the way in which believers are called to respond to them, to cut past the sort of ideological squabbling into something that is more concretely aimed at what does the church say, and how does that relate directly to this situation or that situation? Seems to me to be something which is hard, hard to find. And and, and in the big picture, in the long run, if the the pillar um, or pillar media, I suppose, is able to sort of help to, um, to to identify and amplify voices that are are moving things in that direction and serving um, the body of Christ in that way, I'm enthusiastic about that as well. You, you paint a wonderful picture. I... <laughs> I'd love to get there. (laughs) Well, here's the part of this conversation. Here's the part of this conversation, Ed, that suddenly I feel like I'm an NPR. Um, You don't listen to NPR, I know, and probably a lot of listeners don't. But if you do listen to NPR, you know that feeling where you're like, one morning you get into your car and you turn your car over, and instead of hearing Morning Edition or Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, you hear the host of Morning Edition and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me telling you how great NPR is for a while and then saying like, call right now and... um, and make a pledge, and we'll send you this tote bag and this five DVD set of uh, Luciano Pavarotti singing some songs. You know, I mean, just, you know, NPR Pledge Week is like the worst, because you turn it on, and and instead of hearing the thing that you want to hear, you're just hearing people talk about the thing that you want to hear. And so here's the part where this show is maybe a little bit for three minutes about uh, an an iteration of NPR Pledge Week, and here's why. Um, I... As we come up on a year, I, I think that we have been abundantly blessed in the project of The Pillar. And um, and I thank God for that. And a big part of the reason why we've been abundantly blessed is because Catholics ha- have responded to the work that we're doing and said, yeah, we think this is important. And yeah, we think this is done in, in a way that is intelligent and cogent and faithful. And we we want more of this. And we hear from people all the time who say they want more of it. And um, and many of those Catholics have said, this is news worth paying for and have become subscribers to the Pillar. Um, but to continue, and, and thanks be to God for that. I mean, thanks be to God for that and thank you for our subscribers for that. To continue to grow the Pillar, to continue to um, serve our mission, um, frankly, at the end of the day, um, we need more people who think that this project that we do on the podcast and in our work at the Pillar um, is a worthwhile project and is of service to the church to um, to become paying subscribers to the Pillar. It is. Um, it is our goal to be able to um, make the pillar as widely available and as broadly available as is as as we can, and um, and in order to do that, we're coming to you as sort of podcast listeners in this pledge week forum forum because you guys who listen to the show are in many ways like uh, part of a community that is a podcast. Every time I talk to people who who listen to the podcast, it's like I'm. It's like we're friends, you know what I mean? It's like we know each other. You guys know us, and we often have the opportunity to get to know you. And um, and so because of that community, it seems like you have um, an investment in our um, work. And if that's true, then um, this is a pitch to ask you to make an investment in our work by becoming paying subscribers to The Pillar. I mean, what you say is
1: true about it, there being a sort of community aspect to this that I've had, and in fact, I think I mentioned this in the podcast like last week or the week before that, you know, I I do meet people who listen to the podcast and it is, I mean, it's really affirming. It's really, um, it's really helpful. It's, it is to a degree sustaining in our work that there are people who, you know, don't just read the stories that we write and read, you know, the sort of really long form, nerdy data-driven analysis of, you know, baptismal rates and demographic shifts around church closures, which is great. And I think that's important that what we do, but I do feel like the people who listen to the podcast are sort of personally invested in a way in which we are personally invested in this project. And I really appreciate that. Um, I do wish you would all you dear listeners. I do wish everyone who listened to the podcast would subscribe. Um, if for no other reason than if we had as many paying subscribers as we have, uh, people who listen to the podcast every week, we would, be in a position to grow um which would be really nice and um and that kind of sustainable future is of very great interest to me and to my beautiful adorable newborn baby daughter <laughs>
0: that is so oh my gosh that is so i crazy. don't care i got rent <laughs> pillarcatholic.com subscribe tell us more about she your beautiful daughter and beautiful eyes and, no, I mean really, jd <laughs> Really? But they're so sad. So, J.D., do you in know the show why notes? they're sad? It's
1: fear. Oh, gosh. She doesn't know where her next meal is coming from.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. In the show notes this week uh, is a link to pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe. And if you believe in what we do and if you think it's news worth paying for, this is the end of our Pledge Week pitch. But um, the pitch is to... Um, to uh, To put your money where your ears are, and to become pillarcatholic.com subscribers because we think this is a service to the church, and um, and 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 we think that you think that too. Okay. Do you want to talk about Cleveland? Sure. Let's talk about Cleveland. Okay. Um, we reported last week. Did we talk about Cleveland on the show last week? I. I don't think we did.
1: <laughs> I, I don't want to keep harping on my current state of life, but JD, I have, no, have no idea, idea what yeah, we talked better. about last
0: week. <laughs> we reported. Uh, we reported last Friday. I don't think we did because we reported last Friday. Um, that there were three seminarians who uh, alleged that they had been um, se- sexually abused, harassed, coerced, and manipulated by, uh, by priests of the Diocese of Cleveland when they were seminarians. They were former seminarians, and they said that they had been abused when they, when they were seminarians, that he had uh, um, used spiritual language to encourage them. And if your kids are listening to the show, we're going to talk about this, so maybe listen to a different show, um, that if, he, that he had used spiritual language to encourage them to, uh, go skinny dipping with them and, and ply them with excessive amounts of alcohol, that he had told them, you know, to be free before God, they alleged, and God wants you to have masculine vulnerability, and then he plied them with alcohol and then took them to, to uh, a lake house, in, in two cases, to do, to, to, to go skinny dipping with him, and, and, uh, and in one case, allegedly, um, you know, took photographs of a person. And so we reported that last Friday. And the diocese said initially that they, um, uh, that, that nothing in what had been r- reported to them could be considered abusive or harassment, which the, the sem- young seminarians were, former seminarians were just totally surprised by. And we did some follow-up and we continued to kind of talk with people and ask some questions to the diocese. And the cool thing about this report is that this week, the Diocese of Cleveland announced that they would reopen their investigation in, into this situation. And, you know, that is, that is, I think, a good thing, because what you had effectively was this very interesting kind of disparity between what these three seminarians had told us, namely that they had been kind of coerced and abused and manipulated using kind of spiritual language and being plied with alcohol, and what the diocese believe, seemed to believe had happened, which was effectively that there were these consensual events um, involving a lot of alcohol and swimming naked and taking photographs that that the former seminarians had then reported to the diocese. And um, and that doesn't add up, you know, it, it doesn't add up to the You don't to the tend to self-report Right, I mean, that's what the former activity. seminarian said is like, why would we have reported this if indeed we um didn't think it was okay? You know, if indeed we thought it was okay, why would we have reported it? The fact that we reported it should be evidence in the first place that we didn't think it was okay. And then they said, and we believe that the way that we spoke to the investigator conveyed that it wasn't okay and that we had been, of course, manipulated. And just objectively, like, um, that a priest would go... Um, and do these things with seminarians should I think in two thousand twenty one like be manifestly not okay, whether or not the seminarians think it was okay or not. I mean, it should just be manifestly and demonstrably um, not okay, and and, uh, and and the the sort of imbalance of power and relationship there should be recognized and things like that. But um, but I do think it was a good thing. You know, I do think it is a good thing that the diocese of Cleveland says they effectively reopen it and and hopefully can rehear what for whatever reason it sounds like they didn't hear the seminarians say that they said and the the diocese said that they didn't hear, which I think leads to some interesting questions. But I do think it's good that they'll rehear it. I've been thinking about why it might be that there's this disparity between what the former seminarians say they said, um, namely that they reported this and that it was inappropriate and they felt harassed and manipulated and coerced, and what the diocese heard, which was that this was consensual activity among friends. And part of it, I think, is you know, could be that I think for a lot of people there has not been a recognition until recent years i mean the the former seminary they reported this in 2019 Uh, you know they did report this in 2019 and the diocese investigated in 2019 and 2020 but i I think for a lot of people there there has not been until recent years kind of like a recognition of the way in which coercion works and the way in which sort of um, roles and um uh, authority works to kind of be influential and so you know it seems to me that if Seminarians and a priest are engaged in activity which is manifestly unchaste, um, initiated by the priest. It seems obvious that there is an imbalance of power there, which could have been coercive, um, uh, and all the more so when they say this was sort of couched in something that God wanted for us. When God obviously doesn't want us to do uh, things like like you know, uh, drink too much and
1: yeah, this is a, something that's always a sticking point for me uh, in in all of this. Is there are. There are things to be learned and there are things that are being learned slowly, but importantly at the institutional level in terms of how power dynamics can be abused and become dysfunctional and how you detect that and how you talk to people about these things and how you investigate them. On the other hand, I think there is also a basic smell test and... Giving people a lot of alcohol and saying let's all get vulnerable before God and take our clothes off together yeah, is I would have thought yeah. that that shouldn't right there, there there doesn't need to be a PowerPoint
0: presentation right. on why that's wrong right right totally that should ring some alarm bells hard yeah but I've been just trying to think because of that I've just been trying to think so what are the possibilities so the possibilities are that the seminarians all all say well we reported exactly what happened and how it made we as feeling how we perceived in these kinds of things and They, you know, one possibility is that they didn't report it that way. But again, we have sort of independent voices saying this is what we said, um, which internally verify each other. And um, again, sort of the logic of the thing that we reported it would suggest that they reported because they thought it was an issue. Otherwise, why would they sort of self report something that they weren't supposed to have been doing?
1: Well, and some of them told us, and we reported
0: this that they were at one point offered apologies and right. therapy. Yeah, right. Although it's I, like, yeah, I didn't put a whole. You know, I I think one thing that happens is that it, um, there's a way of sort of offering a platitudinous apology that is like, I'm sorry for what you are. Right. It's, yeah, so be, it's be, possible that they were should, yeah. sorry for yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But still, again,
1: access to therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is not tend to be offered.
0: Oh, I don't for, know healthy consensual behavior. Uh, you know, that's true. But it it, t- it does tend to be offered, I think, for, for people who, it, it does tend to be offered for people who feel that they have been aggrieved without a judgment about their grievance. Um, and so again, I did not put stock in sort of that as an admission necessarily, um, because it does tend to be offered, you know, as a sort of recognition of the perception of, of grievance without a sort of judgment about the veracity of grievance.
1: Well, then that goes right to the heart of what's wrong with a lot of the church's penal problems, because the idea that you can um, take criminal behavior, and that's not what I'm talking about here, but I'm saying two different things, what the church did have for a long time in this country, especially in the 1970s and 80s, was you take clearly criminal behavior and you medicalize it and channel it into therapy, and then you don't have criminals, you have people who, you know, yeah. father, father has a problem, and father just needs to be encouraged to dress in mood-appropriate clothing and do finger painting you're laughing i've read case files no, I where know. that yeah, yeah, was what yeah. was done yeah father was you know it yeah, was yeah. told you you should wear bright colors when you're feeling happy and, and it's like that so right, that's right. not a joke that's actually what they did
0: yeah
1: if we've gone from that to saying well everybody who feels aggrieved uh, okay therapy like and use that as a sort of catch-all
0: we don't know what to do so we'll do that that's just as bad we haven't you know, no. Well, no, I mean, I, I disagree with you about that, because I think anyone who comes and says, I have been—if if a ministry of dioceses or policy of dioceses is that anyone who comes who says, I have been heard in the context of the church, or I feel that I've been heard in the context of the church, if if to anyone who does that, the church says, we'll make available to you therapy, which probably is the result of litigation and things like that. But, um, but if that is a policy, I don't think that's a—I I think that's a— good thing if you... if It's you a good thing if that it's that done, done for a real reason and no. you think there's a real reason why it's
1: necessary. What I'm saying is not a good thing is if you just sort of treat that as, well, we don't know what to do, so therapy.
0: No, I mean, I like, think if that's, that's not all cool, you do. it should be a cul-de-sac you that you just sort of push things down. I think if it's all you do, it's problematic, but I think if it um, is sort of universally available. So if, if you're having a meeting with people and it's hot, you offer them a glass of water. Um, if you're having a meeting with people who say that they've been hurt in the church and you offer to help them um, deal with that hurt... I I, I I guess I see that as sort of universally you know, an act of, sort of kindness, whether or not—or uh, or an act worth doing without sort of making a judgment about the veracity of the thing.
1: Well, I— Okay, but I think there should be a judgment about the veracity. There should of the be a judgment of the veracity. Of that's the thing, but I think Is, Regardless it, of the judgment you know, of the yeah, veracity, if somebody's hot, you give them a glass of water. Fine. Yeah. If somebody says, "Hey, I was hurt by something," you don't say, "Oh, how about therapy?" You don't say first how about therapy say, only.
0: I think I think that, you that's say, what I say first you say how about therapy? Really? You want it, tell us what tell happened. us all about it, and we'll look into it. But I think even if you say while we're looking into it, how about therapy? I don't think that's a I don't think that's problematic in and of itself, unless you look at it as the only thing you have to do.
1: I, I want to be absolutely clear in case I'm not being clear. I'm not saying therapy or offering people therapy is problematic. I think I'm you saying
0: were. I No, think I you was were. not. No,
1: I think you definitely were.
0: <laughs> I don't know if you were or you weren't, but it sounded like that to me. No, that's not what I was saying. What okay. I was saying
1: is you can't use it to deflect from no, dealing no, no, with the thing. No, you can't thing. use
0: it to deal with deflect from dealing with the thing. But the you brought it up to say well, that's sort of an acknowledgement by the diocese of a recognition that something wrong has occurred. And I would say, actually, I think the sort of ordinary practice by dioceses is that it's explicitly not a recognition that uh, of a particular set of facts. Rather, it is sort of universally offered by to those who feel that they have been hurt in the church. And, and I'm I don't, saying that
1: the institutional church in this country has a very checkered history with using therapy as a way of dodging making proper evaluations of right and wrongdoing.
0: That is true. So there are two things. One ought, that ought to be offered, I think, yes. Two, Three things. One, ought to be offered, I think, um, yes. Two, ought it be this, the only thing that's done to address a problem? No. Three, is it an indication of a particular thing in this particular case? No, I don't think it's an I don't think it can be taken as an indicator of a particular thing in this case. But going back to it, I do think that they I, I do think that they that that they reported it sort of indicates that they recon, that they that the, these former seminarians perceived that it was a problem. So this diocesan perspective that like, oh we didn't know it was a problem. Um, I, have just been trying to think like if, assuming that everyone is acting in good faith here, um, what is the way in which that could have happened? And the only thing I I think that the only way in which I think that could have happened if everyone is acting in good faith is if there's just a radical sort of misunderstanding about why this thing is wholly and entirely inappropriate. If that's not the case, then there's the suggestion of, okay, who's not acting in good faith? Okay.
1: But I mean, again, if that is the, if that is the case and if that is the best... Um, good faith explanation for how there can be this disparity we're back to there's a very simple fact pattern here and i i would worry if there's a way in which that fact pattern does not immediately trigger alarm bells especially in the post mccarrick world
0: right oh yeah totally right that's that i think is because if everyone's acting in good faith and they don't recognize that this is a problem well then then the issue there is like profoundly sort of negligent awareness of the dynamics involved in these things right but if not then the question becomes is ever you know are there people who are not acting in good faith and and we don't yet have evidence of that but what we do have is knowledge that um the diocese says they will reopen their investigation so the best way to know if the diocese i think has has addressed internally whatever it was that led to this failure to recognize this thing as a problem um is to see uh what happens at the end of this investigation that they say they're launching now It'll be interesting
1: to see. I mean, I hope you'll we'll get to see yeah. um, what the conclusions of the investigation are. Yeah. But I mean, again, this is this is one of those things that, you know, we've we've come up with this come up against this a couple of times in uh, the in the post years, which is to just say this doesn't pass the immediate parental sniff test of like you would not. If you found your, if if you were told that this is what was being done to or with your children, you or just would not happened be, at the seminary where your son went, you would not be cool with that. Right. And, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. Friends don't get friends drunk and say, "Let's all get naked." Yeah, that's generally,
0: that, I think, there's, true. Indeed. There's no yes, healthy indeed. reason for that. Right. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. I think mystifies that be, me. Yeah. I don't get it. We shall see what happens. In the meantime, Ed, since this was sort of a pledge drive episode, I have a pledge drive game for you. Okay. It's called.
1: Wait, I've said that enthusiastically, but now I just realized you said pledge drive game, and now I don't know what I'm well, in. Well, this for, was
0: sort of a, ple- you know, this was sort of an episode where we talked for a while about what we're up to, and then encouraged people to um, subscribe. And so, I, uh, I have a, so I, as I said, it was kind of like our NPR sort of pledge driveish kind of episode. So I have a pledge drive game that we're going to okay. play,
1: and it's. I don't. It's I don't know what a pledge drive game is. but well, I, mean, I don't all right. either. So I, mean... I just
0: made one up. It's called pledge trivia. So Ed, are you ready to play pledge trivia? <laughs> yes, 2021. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. So the way this game works is that I'm going to ask you questions about things related to pledges, and you will make an educated guess if you do not know the information about what it is that I am asking you. Okay. Okay. Um, Let's begin, Ed, with pledging the Greek life. Um, Ed, as you know, when someone joins a fraternity or a sorority, they are first during their initiate period referred to as a pledge. With that in mind, Ed, at what school was the first Greek letter fraternity in the United States founded?
1: You presumed a lot of knowledge there on my part that I don't have, but I, I am familiar. I have you are, seen You're the, aware of fraternities because you've seen mo- for them in movies, I presume? I've seen them in movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I am... The, my knowledge of fraternity basically is limited to Animal House, but okay. Um,
0: where was the first college where they had the first fraternity At with Greek letters? Was the first name? fraternity in the United States founded, and I'll give you a hint. No,
1: no, no. No, no, no. I want.
0: Would you I you wanted like to him? have...
1: You that? No, I'd like to try and do this on my own.
0: Okay, so I know they have wacky ones at
1: um, Harvard and Yale. I don't think they. Ha- I, I don't know if they have Greek letter fraternities there. They have like no, I, I, said, I know it. they have wacky ones, but yeah. they all have silly wasp names like Skull, skull and, and Bones and, and silly yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm. So I the was stone gonna rule cutters them out. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're all quasi-masonic, totally faintly homoerotic little drinking clubs that I, you know, I don't get it. But I, I don't know anything about them other than their names, but okay, I'll take your word for it anyway um so i i'm gonna say this is probably a this probably started in a state college okay i'm gonna say um it's probably east coast because let's face it it would be wouldn't it um would you like a hint i'm gonna say university of pennsylvania oh
0: i'm sorry Should have taken the hint. I'll give you now and we'll see what you can do. Ed, this, you might say, was an independent fraternity. Independent fraternity. Founded. Kansas? At a time of real independence. Massachusetts? At a, at a, at a place, the center, which was in some ways the center of independence. Okay, so Philadelphia? Let's, let's just make it easier. In what year do you think it might have been founded? Oh, seventeen seventy six! Well guess. done, well done. You really got you picked up the independent vibe. I thought you wanted me to ask and say what school it was. Uh, I, I did, I did, I did. But I th- but I kind of associate this school with seventeen seventy six, whether I should or I shouldn't, oh. um, because I associate it with colonial things altogether. William and Mary. William and Mary was it? Well done! Ding 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 ding! Great no, that job. That was that was me reading your your sort of <laughs> <laughs> language of Yeah, Yeah. Phi Beta Kappa was the uh, first Greek letter fraternity to be founded in the United States in 1776 at the College of William and Mary. And Phi Beta Kappa actually stood for something. I can't remember what it is now. I, um, but uh, but privilege. but it actually what's that? <laughs> it stood for privilege. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did. But I mean, it actually was. Uh, it actually like, uh, um, philosophia. I'm, I'm going to pronounce this wrong because what do I know about Greek? But philosophia bio, uh kybernetes, which means um, love of learning, philosophy. Philosophia is the guide of life. Is it? Indeed. Indeed. That is what they say. So Ed, that's, that's often what I think when I see guys running around in togas drinking. You are one for one. Ed, Ed um, Pledge, the cleaning product made by, of course, S.C. Johnson Wax, was launched in 1958. In what country is Pledge known as Blem? And remember, this Glem. is a Catholic podcast. That's your hint. Uh, I'm going to say the Philippines. Oh. Sorry, why do you say that?
1: Uh has a large Catholic population and a language which I do not recognize words phonetically from.
0: Oh, that's true. You know who they love in the Philippines is the pontiff. They do. They do. Uh, is it. Yeah. <laughs> Italy? I... Yeah, they sure love the pontiff there too. It's almost like he's practically a native son, but... Argentina? Yes, it is, Ed. Pledge, the cleaning product made by S.C. Johnson Max was launched in 1958, and for reasons that escape me, uh, in the country of Argentina, it is known as Blem. Those wacky Argentines. The more, you know. Um, Ed, um, you're English, and so um, you know a few things about the Irish. And, uh, and so okay. you know that there is something in Ireland called The Pledge. What is it?
1: Yes. these These are teetotalers, J.D., yeah, they ha- w-
0: when you find a teetotaler, a person who does not drink alcohol, you say he has taken... The pledge. The pledge. He's, he's pledged not to touch drink. He's pledged not to t- touch drink. And, and where did the pledge begin? And when? You can go either way. Uh,
1: I'm going to say probably started in... Well, so hang on. I okay. You see, I, I want to say Dublin, but... This is a kind of Misery Guts thing to do. So it probably started up north. So Mm. I was going to say somewhere like Londonderry. But then I thought, well, if it was that started up north, it wouldn't have gone across the country. Because, you know, no one does anything just because Ulster people say they're going to do it. Now I'm all turned myself inside out.
0: Uh, uh, Ulster. Final answer. (laughs) Well, I don't know where the pledge began, but... Um, it seems to have been most seems unfair
1: to ask me. That.
0: <laughs> I know, but you know that's how it goes. Um, I, I don't. I, I cannot say the year in which it. You know, the first person ever pledged not to drink alcohol. Um, but the pledge is sort of a so, and the popularity of the pledge is associated with the Cork Total Abstinence Society, which in 1838 began with members pledging total abstinence from alcohol, and in less than nine months had enrolled 150,000 corkers. Uh, to take the pledge not to consume alcohol. It spread to Limerick and elsewhere. Uh, 70,000 in Dublin pledged not to drink alcohol the first day that it was preached in the 1830s. Um, And at its height, just before the famine, the pledge movement of the Cork Total Abstinence Society had enrolled some 3 million people, more than half the total population of Ireland. In a promise from to obtain from alcohol.
1: I like Cork. Yeah, I've been to Cork, cork awesome. a couple of times. It's yeah. it's a night you would never know. Yeah, you'd never know. And that's the highest compliment I could pay the city. You'd never know.
0: What um here's here's your next question, Ed. What uh what Irish holy figure is most sort of associated with the pledge? I do not say saint because he is not indeed canonized. Oh. Oh. But he did I was going to say a, Bean. I was did, going to say Bean. You were going to say Saint Bean. Saint Bean was freaking <laughs> awesome. But no. Uh, but he did live a blessed life. Uh Oh. Yeah. Um, good. On no your way. What Irish
1: figure? I, I don't know. I'm going to embarrass myself trying to guess. No,
0: I, you're close. Actually, I, did he live a blessed life or was he just? Is he just venerated across Ireland? Now I can't remember. Um, Oh, yeah, he's he's merely venerated across Ireland. But he did, Ed, this figure, uh, who in my mind is most associated with the Pledge, maybe I'm wrong about that, but in my mind is most associated with the Pledge, um, had a great conversion and lived a life of asceticism and piety, which probably would have gone unnoticed if it weren't for the fact that when he died, it was discovered that he um, was a sort of great penitent, um, committed to mortification, and beneath his clothes, he was wearing chains of penitence and uh, mortification. Venerable Matt Talbot, you're right, Ed. Do you know, about <laughs> I, Venerable Matt Talbot. Not not oh, a dude, thing. Oh, dude, he Never is awesome. Heard the name? Really? Yeah. Oh, so Matt Talbot was a dock worker in Dublin, like in the 18. was oh, born probably in. He's probably born mid 19th century. Probably born in the 1850s. He was like a dock worker in Dublin. Work, drink, work, drink, work, drink. That's what he did um you know he uh um he was in effect a, a wild rover for many a year and he spent what he did Ed, was he spent all his money on whiskey and beer now that i think about it and um you know did he retire with golden grade store no never no, no. Okay. um there was once when he uh he uh asked a landlady for credit her, But her answer was... no. <laughs> okay, we could go yeah, on okay. with this. On. So, yeah, Blessed Matt Talbot was a big drinker and dock worker. And uh, he borrowed money and pawned his clothes to get money for booze when he ran out of cash and stuff like that. And uh, then when he was um, 28, he was outside a pub just sort of like hanging out, hoping that someone would uh, offer him in for a drink. And a bunch of his friends like passed him by without even sort of recognizing him, let alone asking him to for a drink. And he was just like... He, he just looked at himself like basically standing like a dog outside of a bar, sort of panting and waiting for someone to buy him a drink. And he thought, what has become of me? So he went home to his mother, because he was 28 and living in Ireland, and uh, and and told her that he Confessed was... what he'd done? <laughs> yeah, he confessed what he'd done, <laughs> and asked her in a certain way to pardon his prodigal son. And he told her that he was going to take the pledge, and uh, he did. And uh, at first he took it for three months, and then he took it for, I think, six months or a year, and then he took it for life, and um, he was sober for the remaining like 40 years of his life and continuing to work on the docks. But rather than spending all his money on alcohol, he was just giving money uh, away strenuously. Um, Also, you know, giving a lot of mass stipends and having masses said in contrition for his, um, for his life of debauchery and drunkenness and um, becoming like this mystic uh he, he he began going to daily mass he started reading the lives of the saints he started reading augustine um he started making penitents. he became a third order franciscan and just continued to live this extremely simple pious life kind of wholly unnoticed just giving away everything that he had um sleeping like on you know the floor or on like a plank bed because he was just giving everything away and then when he died um uh, on his way to mass he was discovered like to be this penitent who was wearing, you know, kind of chains of penitence, which were common at that time, and um, discovered to be wearing kind of um, chains which symbolized his consecration to Mary. And one thing led to another, and suddenly there was sort of recognition of the kind of interior life and life of asceticism and prayer that he'd been living. And um, there began a devotion to him. And eventually, I don't know when, he was, a cause was open, you know, a cause was open for him, and now he's a cool dude well i I knew nothing about that that is that's quite something matt talbot man he's he's the man i thought he was I actually thought he was beatified, but then I just looked and he's not he's venerable so matt Talbot he's awesome okay um what is it called uh if one liturgically expresses a pledge as it were to to be married um in what in what context can one liturgically express a pledge to be married
1: uh there is a formal process of canonical engagement is there not?
0: Yeah, and what would you call it? In liturgical context. Uh A if promise one, if one is ritually betrothed to another. Uh if one engages in a sort of a rite. A rite of patrol? A rite of patrol, that's well, right. Okay. Well done. That's very very good. <laughs> that's very very good. I, uh...
1: Okay, I'll take it.
0: Whatever. And this <laughs> pledge was first adopted in 1892. That's probably the pledge of allegiance. Uh, you said it. And in 1954, what was added to the pledge of allegiance? Uh, under God. Because of Freemasonry. Okay. At the at the advocacy and encouragement of. Oh, um, the Knights of Columbus. That's right. Uh, In 1951, the Knights of Columbus began using the words under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, and by 1954, they had been adopted universally. There you have it, Ed. Pledges all around. I I feel like I did all right on the last one and knew that on my own. Yeah, you did. You were were effectively one for five, but I think you were a good sport about it. As long as people were entertained. (laughs) That's all we ask. And you will be entertained uh, next week when we are back. With more to tell you in the meantime, happy Halloween. Boo- ah, 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 ah. Wait, no, can you explain this to
1: me? Um, because I have I have a kid now, so I have can to. Can I, I explain this stuff. Halloween to you? No, I'm familiar with what Halloween Do you have is. Hall- Did you guys have Halloween in England? No, they've tried to import it and it's really bad and it's just it's garbage and but you've right been, people to. people took it. No, I lived I lived in the United States until I was like nine years old. Mm-hmm. I've been trick-or-treating as a child. Like okay. I have the rosy John Landis movie memories of trick-or-treating like like okay but I'm saying I have no experience of it as an adult because I've only lived in this country for like three years mm-hmm. as a as an adult and so I'm not exactly clear on when it is like I, I I'm worried that I'm gonna it's it's currently we're recording this at 5:30 p.m. more or less on Thursday the 28th of October do I need to worry that there are going to be children knocking on my door in the near future looking for candy while
0: we're recording the show,
1: yeah, it's Thursday. It it's
0: I don't know. Is how ha- is it like Thanksgiving? Is it like is Halloween always on a Thursday or something? I, okay, first of all, can you just do this? Can you say to me now that you're explaining to me what you don't know? Can you say to me, I believe in America. America has made my fortune, and I I raised my daughter in America. (laughs) Please, can you just tell me how much you believe in America there? I I do very much believe in America, and and I will one day render you a service. That's great, and so I really appreciate it. No, listen, what you need to know about Halloween is that it takes place on the 31st of October. Okay, so it's a fixed day. It's not one of those roving last whatever of the month. Yes and no. Halloween is always on the 31st, but sometimes people will do—do you know what a trunk or treat is? No. Okay, so parents being what they are now, sometimes instead of having their kids trick-or-treat around the neighborhood or maybe in addition to having their kids trick-or-treat around the neighborhood, would like to do additional things. So, like, they will do these things called trunk retreats where, for example, all the parents from the parish or school or whatever park their cars at the school parking lot and open their trunks, which mostly means back of SUV because who has a sedan now, open the back of their SUV and have um, candy back there and then kids sort of go from trunk to trunk for Look, I remember very little of the panics of the 1980s, but I do know
1: that when adults open their the trunks of their cars and there's candy, <laughs> candy in there, inside. that's danger. No,
0: you no, don't longer. do that. No don't longer. Take, now that is a sign of go good. Don't go near the trunk of the car. That a sign I remember of this. Now that is good and responsible parenting. McGruff the crime dog was yeah. very clear, no, stay out of the trunk. Now that is a sign of good and responsible parenting to have candy in your trunk for kids. Um, for things like trunk or treating, which happens not on Halloween, but at a day around Halloween. So like Saturday, for example, I think there's a lot of trunk or treats around here because it's like, well, you can do it on Saturday. And then if you don't do it on Sunday or whatever. um, So, uh, and sometimes I I, want to say that if Halloween is on a school night, then there might be a lot of trunk or treats like the day, let's say Halloween's on a Monday, they might do a lot of things like on the Sunday or on the weekend so, so that kids aren't out of school. But the fact of the matter is most kids, and I would say all kids, trick-or-treat on Halloween, even if they do supplemental things as well. Okay, so this is... So you should be prepared. What is... You should be prepared to have candy on Halloween, and you might get a couple trick-or-treaters the day before because it's a Saturday, and some towns, like you should look on your town... in your town newspaper or maybe on your town Facebook page because some towns dictate when trick-or-treating is and sometimes towns try to make it like a little sometimes towns try to get you to do it on a different day I'm,
1: I'm not worried about that in my town and in my county i'm pretty sure they think children are supposed to be locked in the basement oh. with five masks on right now like i don't think that okay, they actually no allow children to go out in public it's
0: actually super weird but um what is the baby gonna like what is the baby gonna be for halloween
1: uh this is an interesting question um the uh someone um a friend of ours uh, in our parish, actually. I don't know why, because anyway, people gave us a lot of nice baby stuff when we were expecting in the latter months of the pregnancy, you know, onesies and stuff with cute things written on them and, and things like that. Um, but one of our friends gave us a Wonder Woman costume for an infant. Oh, I I don't know cool. why. That sounds cute. I know. I don't I know d- anything
0: about Wonder Woman. I don't know if she's good or whatever. But I, I, I,
1: you, you know, I, I know what most people know, which is you know lady superman basically yeah. is what we're talking I'm pretty about pretty sure so that's the deal yeah yeah um anyway so there's that that's an option i guess uh i i suggested to my wife that we could cover her in red fur and she could go as elmo because she's about the right size but <laughs> oh
0: gosh. because that did not meet with a warm reception elmo is six man how big is your baby
1: uh about six. Oh, okay there you go pounds i mean you know okay
0: well all right The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D. Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Conant. Happy Halloween. Ah.